You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Over the course of his long and illustrious ministry, one that spanned more than three decades, the Apostle Paul wrote a great many letters. In fact, it's the Pauline epistles that constitute fully half of our New Testament canon. As you know, most of these letters were written to churches or to worshiping communities that Paul had either established or at least helped to establish during the course of his missionary journeys. And most of them were written to address specific problems or concerns within those churches. In the case of First and Second Corinthians, for example, Paul was writing to address some serious doctrinal and behavioral issues that had arisen in the life of the church and threatened its witness. And in the case of Philippians, Paul was writing simply to thank the Philippians for their generosity, but also to encourage them to remain steadfast and strong in the midst of persecution and pressure from the world. Some of Paul's letters, Romans in particular, rank among the greatest works in all of history, having literally changed the course of men and nations. Well, this morning we come to another of Paul's letters, but this one is different from all the rest. In the view of many, this is the tenderest, the most intimate, the most poignant of all the apostles' writings. Bishop Hanley Mole, who was the great scholar bishop of Durham, England, put it well. He said he found it difficult to read through a single chapter of this epistle without something like a mist gathering in his eyes. And that's because 2 Timothy is the very last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. It's sometimes described as his last will and testament. Because at the time that Paul wrote this little epistle, he was locked away in a prison cell in Rome awaiting execution. Tradition holds that it was the notorious Mamertine jail, a wretched rat-infested pit. The great persecution that had erupted during the reign of Nero was in full swing, and Paul, as a leader of the church, had been arrested and locked away in fetters. He really didn't know how much time he had left, but he did sense that it wasn't much. Toward the end of this letter, he writes, I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. It's no exaggeration to say that when you read through 2 Timothy, when you read through the words of today's first lesson, you are literally reading the last words of a condemned man. As a pastor over the years, I have been with many a dying parishioner. And you hear all sorts of things. Some people in their final moments will express feelings of love and affection toward their family members. Some will express feelings of sorrow and regret at missed opportunities. Some will express feelings of fear and anxiety. And some, particularly those who have suffered for a long time, will often express feelings of relief and almost resignation. Well, it's worth asking, what was the Apostle Paul experiencing when he wrote his last words? What was going through his mind and his heart? I would have to say that if there was one overriding emotion in Paul's life at this point, it was concern. Paul 
was deeply concerned. Now, not for himself, mind you. Paul's situation was bleak, to say the least, but he was not concerned about himself. Paul knew full well where he was going. To be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. He actually looked forward to that. In fact, in that same section where he talks about being poured out like a drink offering, he also says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and there is now stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will appoint me on that day. No, Paul was not the least bit concerned about his own future or destiny. But he was deeply, deeply concerned about the future and the well-being of the church. Who is going to carry on his work when he was no longer on the scene? Who is going to rise up to defend the good deposits when he was struck down? Who is going to pass on to the next generation the good news of Jesus Christ when his body was being placed in the grave? Oh yes, Paul was deeply concerned for the welfare and the future of the church. And that's why he wrote this second letter to Timothy, this second letter to his young friend living far across the Adriatic in Ephesus. For over 15 years, since he had first been recruited in his hometown of Lystra, Timothy had been Paul's constant companion and partner in the gospel. He had been with Paul on the second and third missionary journeys. He'd even served as Paul's special envoy and apostolic representative to a number of the churches. When everyone else had deserted Paul or let him down, and by the way, many people did, it had been Timothy alone who had remained steadfast and true. And that loyalty and that affection was amply returned by the apostle. Paul loved Timothy. In various places he describes him as my partner in the gospel, my dear brother, my fellow servant, my beloved and fruitful child in the Lord. Speaking of Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like him. So when you think about it, it's really no wonder, is it, that as Paul was coming to the end of the road, as he could see martyrdom on the horizon, his thoughts inevitably turned to his young friend, Timothy. For who but Timothy could carry on Paul's work in the world? Who but Timothy could take up that apostolic mantle? Who but Timothy could possibly carry on Paul's work when he had passed from the scene? Who but Timothy? Well, who indeed? You know, when you think about it, Timothy actually proved to be a most unlikely individual to step into Paul's shoes and become his heir apparent for all his promise and for all his potential. But to begin with, Timothy was still relatively young. Paul begins this letter by encouraging him to flee youthful passions. Timothy also was apparently inclined to sickness or illness. Paul in his first letter speaks of his frequent ailments and even prescribed a tonic of wine and water to settle the young man's stomach. And on top of everything else, Timothy was by nature, by disposition, shy, reticent, retiring, timid. He was timid Timothy. 
Paul was always having to buoy him up and encourage him. Well, ask yourself, how in the world was somebody like that going to step into Paul's shoes? How was somebody like that going to carry on Paul's work in the world? And more to the point, how are you and I going to do it today? For see, our job in the 21st century is precisely the same as Timothy's job in the first. It is the job of receiving and passing on to the next generation the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something today, and it's very important, especially on a Sunday like this with the children. The Christian faith does not pass from one generation to the next by sheer osmosis. Just because you're a Christian today is no guarantee that your children or your grandchildren are going to be Christians. As one of my friends likes to say, God has no grandchildren. And what that means is that if Christianity and the Christian faith are going to survive in our country and in our world today, there is a sense in which it is up to you and to me. The Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, put it well. He said, Christianity is only ever a single generation away from extinction. Well, let me tell you, the Apostle Paul understood all of that. He understood that the stakes were extremely high. That's why he was so concerned. He understood that Christianity was on the line. And what's more, he understood the challenges and the difficulties that young Timothy was going to face as a leader in the church. And again, that's why he wrote this little letter. He wrote it not simply to encourage Timothy, but to equip Timothy and to equip successive generations in the sharing of the gospel. I want you to notice how Paul begins today's lesson. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As Anglicans, we sometimes hear about apostolic succession well, this is what the New Testament means by that idea. It does not mean just the passing on of authority through the laying on of hands or even the tracing of a line of bishops back through the centuries to Peter or one of the apostles. It means the passing on of the good deposit, the apostolic faith. Paul says that he had received the gospel from Christ. He had in turn had passed that on to Timothy in the presence of many witnesses. And now he says it is Timothy's responsibility to pass on that good deposit to faithful men who would be able to teach others. Like the passing of the Olympic torch from one person to the next. Now, Paul understood that that was an awesome responsibility, and he understood that Timothy was weak. And that's why he says, be strengthened. 
He knew that if Timothy was going to be an effective witness, he had to be strong. But I want you to notice how Paul puts it. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that to command somebody like Timothy to be strong was like commanding a snail to be quick or a horse to fly. He simply couldn't do it. He didn't have the wherewithal. The only way he was going to be effective in passing on the gospel and preserving the Christian deposit was that if he was strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that that was the critical element because it had been the critical element in his own life. We all know that Paul had done some amazing things, but he had not done it in and of his own strength. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, do you understand that the same is true for us? Do you understand that you and I have the job of passing on the good deposit of the gospel to the next generation? And that if we're going to do it, we have to be strong, not in and of ourselves. This is the largest generation in this nation's history. And it is also the first generation in this nation's history that is largely unchurched. Most young people today have had no religious or spiritual upbringing whatsoever. And if the Christian faith is to be preserved, if the good deposit is to be passed on to the next generation, then you and I need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so that is exactly what Paul goes on to give Timothy at this point. As a matter of fact, he gives him three pictures of what it looks like to be a strong and effective witness. First, he gives him a picture of a soldier. Second, a picture of an athlete. And finally, he gives him the picture of a farmer. Verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Over the course of his ministry, Paul had had ample opportunity to observe Roman soldiers. They were everywhere in the empire. And one of the things that Paul noticed about soldiers is that their life was characterized by suffering and hardship. A soldier's life is not an easy life. No one goes into the military in the hopes of having a cushy or soft existence. Now, the recruitment posters won't tell you all of this. But a soldier's life is characterized by obedience and hardship. Soldiers sometimes have to spend long periods of time away from their family and their friends and their homes, sometimes months, sometimes even years. And Paul was reminding Timothy that to be an effective witness, he had to remember that he was now a soldier. He had enlisted in the army of God, and he was serving under the banner of his captain, Jesus Christ. And that would, from time to time, involve suffering. Do we realize that to be effective witnesses today, that may involve suffering on our part, like good soldiers? My grandmother was a war bride during the Second World War. She lived in England, in Liverpool. And if you know anything about that city, you know that it was a major manufacturing center for the British during the war, and it was continuously bombed. 
and she had to endure the terrors and the bombings of those days. Even as a child, I remember she never liked loud thunderstorms because she said it reminded her of those awful explosions. Well, once when we were in England together visiting family, I asked her, how did they do it? How in the world did you survive those days, the, the privations, the rationing of food and clothing and so forth? And she looked at me and she said, how did we do it? We just did. After all, there was a war on. Well, I wonder how many Christians today realize that there is a war on. Because the Bible says there is. You and I are caught in a great cosmic conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, between the truth and the lie. It's a real war with real battles and real casualties. The Apostle Paul understood this. My goodness, he was a casualty of this war. He was a prisoner of this war, sitting and waiting to be executed. And Paul wanted Timothy to understand that if he was going to be an effective witness, what had happened to him might possibly happen to Timothy too. Do we realize that today as soldiers of the cross? So many Christians are surprised when they get pushed back from the world, or they're rejected by the world, or they're hated by the world. But I ask you, why? Why are we surprised when the world goes from bad to worse and then persecutes those who swim against the stream? Jesus in John chapter 15 said to his disciples, if the world hated me, and of course it did, the cross is the evidence of that, if the world hated me, it will hate you also. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because I have taken you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way. But Jesus' words imply that if you and I are not facing pushback from the world, if we're not facing persecution or resistance from the world, it's probably because we don't have a particularly strong or robust Christian faith. Reminds me of the young freshman who had just gone off to college. He went to a secular university, and he came home on fall break to meet with his youth minister. Youth minister was concerned about how he was doing in college, and he said, well, how's it going? And the young man said, it's going great. Nobody even knows I'm a Christian. <laughs> well, does the world know that you're a Christian? It will if you're soldiering for Jesus Christ, if you're fighting under his banner, if you're tirelessly suffering to pass on to the next generation the good news. The old hymn got it right, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. But it's not just a good soldier that Timothy was to emulate. He was also to emulate the hardworking athlete. Verse five, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
In the ancient world, athletes did not receive trophies or medals for their achievements. They received a crown, normally made of laurel wreath, symbolizing victory. And it was a great honor to go through that coronation ceremony, that victory celebration. But Paul says an athlete only got the crown if he competed according to the rules. The Greek translation here is interesting. It's athlete nomimos. And it was often used to distinguish between a professional athlete and an amateur. The athlete who competed nomimos was one who put his whole self into it. For such a person, running would not be a hobby or a part-time concern. It would be almost an obsession. Well, we understand this today, don't we? We have professional athletes. We prize them highly. We pay them enormous sums of money. But we recognize that they have to work diligently. They have to follow certain regimens, certain training exercises. They have to make certain sacrifices. They can't eat chocolate cake and ice cream. They've got to give that up for low-fat yogurt. They've got to be all in if they're going to win. And furthermore, they're only going to win if they compete according to the rules. You may recall that back in 2019, hundreds of athletes from Russia and Belarus were denied access to international athletic competitions, including the Olympic Games. And do you remember why? It's because they had been using steroids. They had violated the international ban on doping. Well, Paul says that you and I are competing for something much more precious than a trophy or a medal. We are competing for that imperishable crown, that crown that Paul himself was looking for, that crown of righteousness which the Lord himself gives to those who overcome by his grace. But my friends, you only receive that crown, that crown of victory, that crown of righteousness, if you compete according to the rules. Whose rules? God's rules. Paul was reminding Timothy that it's not just what we say with our lips, it's how we live our lives that matters. Christians are expected to live lives of holiness and purity. We have to live authentic lives if we're really going to pass on to the next generation the good news of Jesus Christ. So if Timothy was going to be an effective witness, timid as he was, he was going to have to be prepared to suffer like a good soldier. He was going to have to be all in like an athlete, but compete according to the rules. But finally, he was also going to have to be like the hardworking farmer. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Most people in the first century lived an agrarian life. Most people lived off the land. Even if you were wealthy and had many vineyards or farms, or even if you were just eking out an existence on a hard scrabble farm, everyone lived according to the land, and everybody knew how hard and fickle that was. If you've known farmers, and I've known many over the years, they are the hardest working people in the world. They have to be up before the sun rises. They often go to bed after the sun sets. They have to plow the ground, whether it's soft or whether it's hard, whether it's raining, whether it's dry 
Whether it's cold, whether it's warm, it makes no difference, and they understand that the seasons wait for nobody. When it's time to plant, it's time to plant. When it's time to pull weeds, it's time to pull weeds. When it's time to water, it's time to water. And when it's time to harvest, it's time to harvest. And of course, that's what the farmer's working for, the harvest. All of that bat-breaking work is for one thing, so that he can have a rich harvest. Well, Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's reminding us, that's what we're all about, isn't it? We're out working for a rich harvest of souls. And if we're going to bring in many to the kingdom of God, it's going to require the hardest work we've ever given. I think perhaps of all the analogies that Paul uses here, this is the toughest one for us because we are so accustomed to living an easy life. But there is no substitute for hard work in the kingdom of God. Ray Stedman put it well. He said, salvation is a free gift. It's not a free ride. So Timothy was inheriting this awesome responsibility. And Paul knew how difficult it was going to be. But he also knew how much was on the line. The Christian faith itself was on the line. And if Timothy was going to be effective in passing on to that next generation that good deposit, and if we are going to be successful in passing on to the next generation that good deposit, all these young people that you saw singing today, then you and I are going to have to be willing to suffer like good soldiers, soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to be willing to be athletes, all in, not part way, all in. And our lives need to reflect what we say with our lips. And finally, we're going to have to be like hard-working farmers, giving it everything we have in season and out of season, praying that God will give us a rich harvest of souls. You say, well, that's, that's hard to do. Is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. Your children and your grandchildren are worth it. And so is the award that we will receive at the end of the day, that imperishable wreath of victory, that crown of salvation which the Lord gives to all those who by his grace persevere to the end. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the Apostle Paul in these last words, his great concern for the church and for the future of the faith. We give you thanks that you use people like Timothy, weak, vacillating, sickly, to do mighty things, not in and of their own strength, but by your grace. Father, give us the courage, the wherewithal, the strength to be good soldiers, dedicated athletes, and hardworking farmers, that we may reach out and save the lost for Jesus' sake. Amen.